0: A goal kick for the Portland Timbers. The crowd of 31,000 on their feet now. As Willie Anderson will kick it from this veneer corner. There's the shot. He's up in front. Jimmy Gabriel tries to get it out of there. He can't. Hank Leotard trying to get it out. Back to Jimmy Kelly. And Kelly controls for Portland. He goes to the corner to Anderson. Anderson has some space. Chips it across in front. There's the shot. Portland!
1: Welcome to Good Seats Still Available, a curious little podcast devoted to exploring what used to be in professional sports. Here's your
0: host, Tim Hanlon.
1: Oh my God, it's Bedlam, isn't it? Hi, Tim Hanlon here, and it's Good Seats Still Available, our curious little podcast uh, that is devoted to what used to be in professional sports. Uh, I thank you kindly for finding us uh, in the uh, wild and wooly. Uh, set of choices that you have in, uh, in podcast land. We appreciate it uh, tremendously. And I uh, hope we uh, entertained you uh, this week as we try to do each and every week. And uh, we veer back into uh, professional soccer as uh, we certainly like to do on uh, as many occasions as we can. And uh, boy, oh boy, if that uh, clip didn't sort of uh, uh, inspire uh, some memories of uh, of the past uh, and the, some of the glory days, if you will, the old North American soccer league. I, geez, I don't know what will. We're going to kind of get into what I'm going to sort of make the argument about is uh, perhaps uh, the team uh, that uh, uh, today probably has the best direct claim to being, I guess, the deepest and most legacy rich of the, shall we say, current generation of uh, professional soccer franchises here in the United States. And that's the Portland Timbers. Uh, yes, Portland Timbers, of course, being uh, a dynamic Part of today's Major League Soccer, them uh, obviously with the uh, the the new 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 renovation uh, of today's Providence Park, with that uh, gorgeous top uh, tier uh, across the uh, sort of uh, the t- the touchline and and sort of now enveloping and keeping a whole lot of more of the noise of the uh, fan base there uh, within the boundaries of the of the stadium. But that uh, Providence Park, right, uh, dates back to you know, a time in uh, 1975 or 74 or so when uh, the Portland Timbers, the original Portland Timbers, 1975, that is, were a, uh, an expansion franchise in the old NASL. Uh, that clip that you heard was uh, one of their playoff games from uh, their very first magical season, uh, that being in what was then known as Civic Stadium, uh, originally, uh, Mult- uh, Multnomah Stadium. Yeah, you say that three times fast. It's hard. Uh, that was originally built in 1926. In other words, uh, that game, by the way, from uh, August 12th, 1975, we'll get into those specifics in a second. But, but that stadium, Civic Stadium, where that game was played against the Seattle Sounders, also now of Major League Soccer and an original member, not an original member, but a member of uh, of the old North American Soccer League. We'll get to that in a second. The lineage, right, of that Civic Stadium or Multnomah Stadium back in 26 uh, traces all the way to Providence Park. And that's why I sort of claim, uh, I think, with with legitimacy, why the Portland Timbers are probably the most legacy filled uh, team uh, in today's MLS uh, that uh, can uh, substantially date roots back to uh, its previous incarnation. And it's uh, arguably its direct lineage. The Portland Timbers, uh, not the only franchise uh, that has uh, reignited itself in today's Major League Soccer. Of course, the San Jose Earthquakes, uh, two versions of that, and MLS. Obviously, the Seattle Sounders, which we just mentioned, and of course the Vancouver Whitecaps. Those, uh, you know, those four franchises, which all came in the uh, the middle part of the '70s in the in the North American Soccer League. The only one of those franchises that still plays in its same original stadium, albeit updated and upgraded, uh, are the Portland Timbers. Uh, we're going to get into Uh, Some of the dynamics of the original Portland Timbers and why uh, I think, frankly, it's important to kind of go back and kind of understand those first few years of the original Portland Timbers franchise and why it matters today. Uh, We get in all of that with our guest this week, Michael Orr, uh, who fancies himself as a uh, transplant to Portland, as well as a fan uh, of the current generation team and frankly was spurred by the arrival of the Portland Timbers in MLS and a desire uh, to kind of go back in time and and not frankly having any stake in the matter having not grown up or uh, uh, you know lived in portland prior really uh, to kind of see what what was this timbers thing before this mls version franchise right there are rumblings you hear you'll hear in our conversation with michael in a few seconds of like what you know there what there was this team and there's a logo and who's this timber you know gym guy and 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 all this stuff right and as the new team Uh, Got going and uh, coming back to the same stadium. I mean, questions were asked and uh, he made it a priority to dig with sort of, you know, open eyes and open uh, mind as to uh, maybe a little bit of an investigation as to what this team uh, circa 1975 and beyond in the North American Soccer League was the Portland Timbers. Uh, That's uh, this topic of our conversation again this week uh, with Michael Orr, the uh, author of the book, The 1975 Portland Timbers, The Birth of Soccer City. And yeah, we're going to get into that, too. The label soccer city. Some uh, other cities have sort of claimed that title over the years. Uh, but again, I think Portland has its uh, rightly choice or opportunity to uh, to lay claim to that 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 uh, moniker. And again, for the historians, uh, that game that uh, we uh, had the clip from uh, comes from uh, Como TV in Seattle. Uh, that was Bruce King, a longtime voice on uh, Como TV sports, along with uh, Cliff McGrath and uh, that siren uh, in the background, as uh, uh, as uh, the Portland Timbers uh, win that playoff game and then go on, obviously, to uh, the 1975 Soccer Bowl, which was in San Jose against the Tampa Bay uh, Rowdies, which they lost ultimately uh, two to nothing, I think it was. The siren apparently was uh, being played by uh, the, I think she was a actual government official uh in in the city of of portland I think I'm must ever get her name right, but she was sort of a big fan of the team and uh and she was the one manning that siren in the background uh and it arguably what what you heard there was a, a, an out an out pitch invasion uh and, and if you look at on YouTube and see these clips of this game back again from august twelfth nineteen seventy five Uh, When the Portland Timbers defeated the Seattle Sounders in sudden death overtime, two to one to go on to Soccer Bowl, 75 Uh, City Commissioner Mildred Schwab. Here's a a, a trivia question for you. She was on that ambulance siren in the background uh, going nuts. And uh, yes, uh, more than a few thousand people were uh, stomping onto that pitch after after that uh, that game. And boy, what a climax. That was the last home game of the season for the Portland Timbers in 1975, their inaugural one in the NASL. Seeds of Soccer City, USA, for sure. And all part of the legacy of today is Portland Timbers. And that's our conversation coming up in just a couple of moments. Uh, Before we get there, I want to say hello and again, welcome uh, to one of our uh, newer and great sponsors. And of course, that's The Great Courses Plus. Uh, And uh, you will find them and uh, more about them at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash Good seats, and again, uh, what is the Great Course as well? It's unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. At least that's what we sort of call it, Uh, and it's uh, by by all means exactly that and more. You know, PC Magazine says it's all you can eat. Excuse me, all you can eat. You can imagine all you can stream access uh, to an excellent library of college level lectures. Uh, And USA Today says, tired of binge watching? Well, sure, try some binge learning. And that's what you're going to get to do at thegreatcoursesplus.com slash goodseats, where you will get, for a limited time, a free month of the Great Courses Plus service. Uh, You uh, can access all of these uh, these lectures and these courses uh, online or via their app. Uh, You can stream uh, using that app to any device. And that app is also cool because you can – uh, download uh, in advance uh, all of the uh, the episodes and the and the lectures in case you're not near a broadband connection or a mobile uh, uh, tower to to get your uh, your streaming internet uh, or you can also uh, listen to uh, these in audio only format uh, should you not have uh, the availability. Uh, to be looking at a screen, perhaps you're driving, let's say. But these are great courses, uh, literally and figuratively, uh, and a lot of uh, great topics such as history and science and hobbies and health and fitness and and with some great experts, not only uh, in terms of the teachers, but the organizations that uh, that are part of, of this coursework, uh, folks like the Smithsonian and National Geographic, the Culinary Institute of America. And of course, we also want to encourage you to try the Great Courses Plus at thegreatcoursesplus.com dot com slash good for their current uh, offering from the National ba- done in conjunction actually with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum, and that's called Play Ball, and it's basically uh, all kinds of coursework around uh, the early history of professional baseball in the United States, and and it's a, an amazing array of uh, of topics and courses, and uh, it's it's fascinating. I'm about fifteen or sixteen uh, lectures into it. And I still got a plenty more to go. And I've learned something in each and every one of them, and you will too. Uh, when you go to thegreatcoursesplus.com/goodseats, get your free month of the Great Courses Plus service and enjoy. Perhaps to start, play ball. The uh, series uh, produced in conjunction with the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum. I am certain that you will enjoy not only that series, but uh, also the other. Uh, array of offerings again from our friends at the great courses plus again one last time the great slash good please get your free month and enjoy on us uh the great courses plus service we thank them for their sponsorship and of course we thank you for listening uh continuously uh to uh the rest of this episode with our pal michael or as we get into the old north american soccer league version of the portland timbers yes they existed before you mls fans of the timbers Uh, and here's our conversation coming right up i'm assuming you're a portland guy uh how did you get involved or interested in going into the wayback machine to the earliest year or years of the portland timbers
2: yeah i'm actually not a portland guy uh or not by birth i've lived here for 10 years but Um, I grew up in Virginia and North Carolina, so I moved here in 2009 and right almost exactly at the time that they made the MLS announcement or the announcement that the timbers of the A-League, USL, what all the various combinations of second division that they played in would be moving up to MLS. So I lived within a few blocks of the stadium and started walking over to games and what mostly happened was I had a bunch of questions about uh, who's the team's all-time leading scorer or, um, you know, if any numbers deserve to be retired beyond the ones that are, what, you know, whose are they and and why? And there, you know, other than sort of anecdotes or word of mouth, uh, there weren't really a lot of answers. So I started looking for them.
1: Well, so so that sounds like you're at least aware or were aware, right, that uh, this wasn't sort of just a brand new, a brand new team with no heritage whatsoever. It did have a name and that name evokes some kind of history that uh, arguably was not well known, at least by you. Uh, or maybe what about other fans, too? Right? Uh, how naive uh, and or lacking of understanding of, of the original name and and uh, and team uh, of this? I mean, you're mentioning the USL and you're mentioning the uh, the A-League and that kind of stuff. But uh, how much would you, were you aware that there was a history even beyond that?
2: So when I moved to Portland, I was unaware of anything. I mean, I'd, I'd never heard of the Portland Timbers before. But people in Portland – I mean, I moved here in 2009. The second division reincarnation of the Timbers had been playing since 2001. So it it, it wasn't – you know, it, it wasn't like uh, no one knew what this was or that this announcement about MLS was some somehow out of the blue. I mean, it was a very long and concerted effort on the part of the fans to convince city council to go along with Merritt Paulson to get an expansion franchise. So just because I was unaware uh, of, of much when I got here doesn't mean other people were unaware. And as I started digging in and, you know, meeting people and eventually formulating an idea for this book and then started talking to people for that, you know, there were, there were people who, but when I, by the time I was writing it in 2010 and 11, you know, they had been season ticket holders every year that there was a team called the Timbers. So 75 to 82, 89 and 90 and 01 to present. So, you know, there, there's a lot of people who know what's going on, um, but that didn't mean they knew some of the answers that I was looking for or what they knew was what they remembered from when they went to games when they were in high school or, you know, just there were, there were pieces missing, um, from, from sort of a, what I was looking for was where's the book, you know, where's the place where I go. It doesn't matter what I know. If I want to get all the information about the starting points, where do I get that? And it didn't exist.
1: There's a loose awareness, I guess, that there is something before even this minor league Portland Timbers thing, but but not a whole lot in terms of either written form or or credibly uh, factual. Uh, it almost feels to me like it's a oral history and yeah. or anecdotal more than anything else,
2: more than anything else, anecdotal. And like, I'll give you a good example. Um, and, and I I won't name names on this, but. Uh, there was a person when I was sort of asking around just to kind of get my bearings on the longer term history stuff and, and trying to figure out where the team came from originally and how it got started and that kind of stuff. And I hadn't yet done any newspaper research interviews, anything like that. I was just kind of asking around and this guy told me, oh yeah, well, it, it, I think it was, uh, sort of an offshoot of West Ham. Uh, you know, and I was like, what? And he said, yeah, yeah, well, the, you know, the first Timbers USL coach w- had been at West Ham and Clive Charles and and Clyde Best, you know, they'd played at West Ham. And I, I'm pretty sure it was like an offshoot of West Ham. And this guy was like a, you know, pretty well-regarded uh, person within the Timbers Army. And, and so I kind of took that at face value. And I assumed that if anyone else had asked a similar question of this person or others, they might have heard the same story. And that story is completely wrong. It has, I mean, it's just completely incorrect. And um, the, the the reasons that he, the guy gave were all true. Those people all had been affiliated with West Ham or had played there um, prior to coming to Portland for whatever reason. And that that was all true. But what that person did was take what they knew and say, "I know these things to be true." And so I'm going to conclude that the entire organization is therefore associated with West Ham instead of doing, you know, one bit of research about what the answer might be um, or if there was some reason to doubt the veracity of that statement. So once I started asking those kinds of questions and getting some anecdotal answers, you know, anecdotal answers are not necessarily wrong, but they're also not necessarily totally right. Or wholly right, um, and there's sometimes a lot more out there. And in the absence of someone having previously done that, there wasn't anything to refute what this guy said, because all of the baseline points were true.
1: Yeah, there's also no linchpin, right? So I, I maybe this is an interesting question to ask ask you. You're not only are you uh, a new fan of the, uh, shall we say, recently upgraded. Uh, to major league soccer, Portland Timbers. For all intents and purposes, an expansion franchise, but a continuation of this name in minor league form that obviously had some known roots uh, elsewhere prior. But you're also new to the city, right? So you have a, you have truly have a clean slate. W- what's your, what's your impression going in? I mean, you're hearing some of the rattlings of, hey, this name didn't come out of thin air. What's rolling around your mind about like, okay, well, how do I learn more about this by just asking people who are similar new fans of this team?
2: Yeah, well, I mean, I, I think that the, you know, without knowing anything about the team or, you know, my knowledge, I'm 36. So, you know, I was born the year after the Timbers disbanded and, uh, you know, sort of during the, the dying days of of the NASL. So, you know, I, I'm as a sports fan and a, I was a history major in college. I mean, I, I'm I'm. I was familiar with the NASL mostly through the Cosmos and you know, as I learned more about English soccer, George Best and you know, all this kind of stuff. And so I, I knew about the NASL and I didn't, you know, I knew there were a million teams and I could never possibly know all of them. And so once I moved here, you know, I, I knew that kind of stuff and when I, you know, when I looked at the very bare minimum of a starting point, you know, oh, here's the Wikipedia page on the Portland Timbers, I'm gonna go to the game for the first time, what's, what's the story? Oh yeah, started, founded in 1975, okay. And, you know, everybody in Portland, even then and before that, everybody knew that it wasn't like people weren't really sure, you know, where it came from Um, before the team moved to MLS. That was the the main connection to first division soccer was knowing that the team had previously been in the first division as it existed, you know, 25 years prior or whatever the the time frame was. So, you know, it, it isn't like nobody knew. Who the Timbers were, and everyone had a connection. The team had the same logo. They played in the same stadium. Uh, a lot of the people who were fans, their parents had gone, you know, when they were younger in the in the '70s, uh, or they themselves had gone as children in the in the '70s. And so, you know, there, there was definitely a strong connection there that people knew. But playing in a second division and knowing that there was a, a higher division that you can't access without expansion. Um, sort of left a little bit of a disconnect. And so I think that people it actually strengthened people's feelings about the original NASL team and hanging on to that and knowing that there was only one team in MLS in two thousand nine, or I guess in two thousand nine there were there were then two that had names from the MLS, I mean from the NASL era, the earthquakes and the Sounders were you know, an expansion team to MLS in in two thousand nine. And so I think that that in Portland the connection to the, the the old days is really strong but there wasn't a centralized place to go to get information about it. So as time passed, people knew that it that it was this is what it was, but then the team didn't exist from 1982 to 89 and it didn't exist from 1991 to 2000. And so those are pretty significant gaps to uh, you know try and keep a A fan base, or a or a living memory, or I mean, I like to use the term institutional knowledge, um, generational fandom, or intergenerational fandom. Those are harder to maintain in those gaps. And so there might be a Timbers reunion game uh, or something, and you know, fewer and fewer people as time goes on remember who the specific players were. They're just oh, those are the guys who used to you know play here in the 70s, I guess. Um, And so those were the gaps that I was looking for or those are the gaps when I was looking for stuff that I found that I wanted to fill in because even when I asked people or fans who'd been there forever, they didn't remember everybody's name or they, you know, when I go back and check later, they got the stuff they said was wrong. Um, and not, not, not on purpose, not out of, uh, malice or negativity. It's just, if it's only in memory and there's nothing to, to really anchor, Any of that stuff. Memories are hard to maintain accurately. Things change. People's perceptions of stuff differ over time. Um, It's just hard to keep track of all that. Um, And so, you know, you said oral history. I mean, I think saying that the the Timbers fandom, you know, it's basically it was a, a large oral tradition of certain things that were remembered and certain things that were forgotten some of it selectively and some of it just because of time. And uh, anyway, that's kind of what I found when I moved here. It turns out uh, it wasn't that hard to find a lot of the information. You just had to to kind of look for it uh, and then put it all in one place.
1: Yeah. I mean, I think some of it's a little bit, you know, probably benign neglect, right? Because you're mentioning gaps and, and you know, minor league and and, and people move on with their lives because it was a time and place. But but frankly, you know, we, we've we've sort of scratched a little bit of this as we've talked about certain uh, NASL teams uh, of the past, and, and they're, depending on where and what time you're asking, the, te- the the often tenuous relationship between their former existences and their current iterations, uh, brand name and all, in Major League Soccer. So I guess this is sort of a wind-up to a question as we get into maybe sort of you know, some of the specifics of how you started to find information and what you did with it. Um, when, if at all, did you start to sense, I wouldn't call it pushback, but uh, not sort of a a gigantically warm embrace by uh, folks related to either the new franchise and or Major League Soccer to go back and remember this team from the supposedly failed North American Soccer League? That's a really great question. and I uh, And part of it is, uh, well, there's there's kind of
2: two sides to it, and the one is, and you kind of you, you kind of mentioned it. You know, a lot of cities that had NASL clubs that that currently have MLS clubs do not share names with those NASL clubs, and part of it, as I, my understanding is, is that when MLS was getting founded and they're creating the brands and names and color schemes, that they didn't want to be associated with something that fewer than 15 years earlier had completely collapsed and, and the, the financial issues and, and troubles were, you know, very well documented and, and pretty well known across sort of sports fandom in the country. And so I definitely can understand why clubs in the mid nineties did not necessarily want to be associated with those things. I know that the New York issue with the Cosmos was partly that and partly trademark related. Um, but, you know, I think with, you know, with Portland and Seattle and San Jose in Vancouver, I mean, those, those teams all were sort of in the, the, the sort of middle wave of the NASL expansion, right? I mean, they're all 74 and 75 expansion teams. And I think that because I, I don't know, I, I, I don't know why those clubs, I mean, I, definitely Seattle and Portland had, in Vancouver had second division teams of the same name. And so it was a little bit easier to to make that connection because they'd already done it so, someone else, you know, previous owners, different iteration of the team, but that had already been done. And so to change the name when you go to MLS would have been very strange, certainly for Portland, Seattle and Vancouver, because they'd been playing for 10 plus years in a different division against each other with the same names um they would have been really weird to change i know the sounders had a vote a fan vote and they decided to keep sounders but you know in portland there was never any question that they were going to keep the name because that's the connection that gives lynn's legitimacy when you're you know an expansion team what 15 years after the founding of the league you, you know you don't you don't have to you can say we're this is our mls expansion but we've been around since 1975 no 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 outdoor professional soccer team in Portland has been called anything but the Timbers and has played in any stadium but but where they play now that said that doesn't mean that the that the ownership group or the the people running the club wanted to be associated with the failure of the NASL so i i wouldn't say i got pushback necessarily when i started asking questions but there was a definite sense of um you know, this is, this is our version of the Timbers. And so the, the sort of the marketing decisions and the business decisions, which I think have been proven over time to have been very smart and really well pulled off, but they didn't necessarily focus on history apart from saying, Hey, we've been around since 1975 and here's a couple of, you know, old pictures sometimes. And, um, you know, that for me personally was pretty frustrating, not because of any connection with research or work that I was doing, but just I thought they sort of owed it to the people who'd been around for, you know, 35 years at that point and just the soccer community in general that had wanted this team to come back and had wanted it to be named the same thing to give it a little more credit and, and, you know, maybe highlight some of those players. Because one of the things that is true in Portland, and I, I know this is true in Seattle and San Jose as well, I assume in Vancouver too that a lot of the guys who came over from England or other places in the 70s and early 80s they a lot of them stayed or when their playing careers were over they moved back. And so a lot of those guys are around. You know, it wouldn't have been that hard. And the Timbers have since done a better job with that um sort of incorporating the 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 former players particularly the the former great players um into the team broadcasts and into the website and all kinds of things like that but um you know so i i think it's a the way that those clubs in in portland in particular chose to do what they did it made a lot of sense on on a lot of levels but but i mean yeah personally i i you know i thought the timber should have a hall of fame or have a you know a place where they had all their trophies from different you know times in the past you know as as a something that which they do now but at the at, you know in 2011 they didn't have that and i thought that would be just a super easy way you're doing a big renovation of the stadium hey here's all the trophies we've won in the past oh you didn't know we had a past well here's a little bit of you know a couple of text panels or something to read up on just as a starter um in case you don't know the history and if you do here's a place to come celebrate it on the way to watch the new version
1: Yeah, I think it's interesting, too, because I think uh, you could make the argument that the uh, rebirth of the San Jose earthquakes, right, uh, from the uh, devilishly named San Jose Clash, you know, in 99, 2000 or so, you know, uh, and and then the Sounders, I think, as a name, if I'm not mistaken, I think was uh, either either the the very bottom of the wish list or maybe even a write-in vote uh, of the other names that were, you know, kind of bandied about there when they were Sort of formulating with Drew Carey and friends, uh, uh, their entry into the into MLS as well. I mean, you have to look at maybe both of those sort of movements as maybe, I guess, a signal towards the inevitability of um, why not? Right, look back. Right. I mean, you know, I think you know, like Major League Soccer, as the story of its history gets written in its first twenty-five years or so, and Lord knows there's a lot more yet to come, and, and some. Some very, you know, some some major issues that still have to be solved. I think going forward, and you know, success, yes, but you know, clearly some other things that have yet to be fulfilled. Um, I do think that it actually, I think, from a timing perspective, right, as the, as the aughts sort of uh, went on and, and into the uh, into this decade, uh, it almost became a, a backhanded sort of, I would say, compliment, but almost convenience, uh, in that there was this history. Um, that you know made made Major League Soccer have something a little bit more, I don't know, some more uh, greater staying power versus say how it first burst onto the scene with all these crazy cockamamie singular names uh, in its attempt to be cool and hip and you know uh, uh, completely uh, radical, I guess, in terms of its uh, its vision for the future. And ironically, uh, its future very much has a lot of um, uh, frankly, for a lot of gener- a lot of a generation of or two of fans a surprisingly rich uh, history and roots, right? Uh, And not just manufactured by calling a team FC this or something real, right? Yeah, yeah, totally. Yeah, I mean, I
2: think, you know, I think, um, you know, in Seattle, there was a team called the Storm, I think, and and they're definitely in Vancouver was the 86ers. And they, they, you know, they ultimately, after experimenting with those teams in lower, you know, lower levels, went back to the NASL names, uh, even before their moves to MLS and I think sort of like you're saying if if you if you've got some history and you're in a sport where at the very least the the majority of sports fans in this country are unfamiliar with that history. I mean people who love soccer know about the American Soccer League and Bethlehem Steel and all these kinds of things but if but that's not by any stretch of the imagination a large percentage of overall fans and if you're, you know, if you're MLS and you're trying to capture new fans, um, you know, you can't rely on people knowing all those things. But if you do have a few names that have a connection to decades past, yeah, it lends some legitimacy to the idea that you're not just a brand new thing, um, that this has been going on longer and what you're doing now is just a more stable business version of what's been going on forever. and um, yeah, there are lots of lots of things to quibble about with MLS and the way the business works and and all that stuff. But I think from a naming perspective and and a, and a picking clubs to be expansion teams that were only expansion in like like lowercase E expansion teams, right? Um, places that had existing second division teams uh, and that they've continued to do that, you know, with places like you know Orlando and um, Cincinnati and Nashville and stuff, whatever. That, you know, the, the, that there's a greater chance of success, and and also, you know, there are people who have more invested in that sport in those locations over time. That can only help the league. Um, you know, and and but I definitely Portland is one of the best examples of that with. I mean, I am not here to criticize Seattle, um, as many pe- Portland people do, but you know, if you look at the Sounders USL attendance numbers, I mean, they're they're like two thousand, three thousand people per game. You know, I mean, Seattle from a from an expansion site makes a lot of sense for, based on the city and putting a team in the Northwest, but it it wasn't like they had. FC Cincinnati level, you know, 20,000 people coming to Sounders games, but, you know, nowhere, nothing like that. So, you know, Portland had a lot more than that. Vancouver had a lot more than that. So I think there's a lot of nice reasons to do that kind of stuff. And in Portland, you know, um, when I got here, it was right at the beginning of that, not of the process to gain expansion, but then the process of going from a second team, a second tier team To a first tier team and what kind of roster moves do you make and, you know, stadium expansion, et cetera, et cetera.
1: Well, there's also one other sort of aspect, which I think is uh, fundamentally, I think, unique uh, relative to uh, the today version uh, of uh, uh, of an MLS franchise and the previous version of the NASL, which is the stadium is exactly. The same, not obviously in terms of uh, amenities and all that stuff, but it is literally the same stadium, Civic Stadium, as it used to be known, right, which is now today's Providence Park, which, you know, it continues to uh, still feel very intimate. And now with the, the new uh, gigantic sort of third tier and, you know, there's been a lot of loving recrafting, shall we say, of a gigantic part of what made the original Timbers uh, all that and then some back in 75. Yeah, I mean, it's it's downtown uh and
2: you know it, the stadium was you know built in 1926 so i mean it's been there for a long time and and there's been a lot of different things that have been in that stadium from dog racing to baseball to all kinds of stuff and you know when the timber started in 1975 there was there was a I forget now it was it the world football league um, there was a port. There was a Portland franchise in in the World Football League. Yes, um, the, port, the, Portland
1: the Portland Storm or the
2: Portland Portland Thunder. Storm. Yeah, I think they changed. Well, no, maybe there was. a You've
1: not been listening, young man, to our episodes. Yeah, the WFL uh, for its year and a half existence actually was two, if you will, separate leagues. And I think, if I'm not mistaken, the Storm was their one name. Thunder was a second year. Yeah, yeah, that's right. And so one,
2: and one of those years was 1975, and so the Timbers were sharing the stadium with them and the Portland Mavericks of you know, Kurt Russell and Netflix documentary fame. And, um, you know, so there, there was a lot going on and, you know, they had, you know, AstroTurf field and, you know, dirt on the first, second and third base spots. And, you know, I mean, it was kind of an interesting place at the time because there was so much going on on that field. But like I said before, no, no, no version of the Timbers, no, you know, no professional outdoor team in portland has ever played in a stadium except that stadium it's harder when you're in a place where there have been teams in different previous leagues under different names maybe with different colors and you played in a different stadium from where you're playing now the the connections to make between those things are so much harder because you have to stretch so much further to make those connections with the timbers the colors are the same. The name is the same. The stadium's the same. It's, it's much, much easier to, you know, some of these guys who, who i talked to, who were, you know, bought season tickets when they were in high school or early college or whatever. And back in 75, you know, they bring their kids and their grandkids and they're like, well, that's where I sat with your mother or that's where, that's where we, you know, we sat over there. Um, there's so much more connectivity with that and you know, the stadium still existing in its location and all the reasons why other things didn't happen with that location could fill hours and hours of podcasts. But for all the random different reasons, having nothing to do with professional soccer over the years, that that stadium has not been bulldozed and sits very close in and on all the transportation lines. And You know, has basically no parking, and so it has this real in the middle of town sense that is pretty hard to find with you know most outside of the sort of Wrigley Field, Fenway Park, and you know I'm not trying to equate those with you know Providence Park, but they have that same like it's just in the neighborhood, and there are apartments and houses and stuff right next to it. um, That modern sports stadiums don't have. And so it really does just feel like part of Portland instead of saying, oh, well, I'm going to go to this enormous arena with rings of parking around it. Or, you know, if it's Philadelphia, I'm going to go to that place where all of the stadiums are located with all of the parking around it. I mean, those are great and there's nothing wrong with that. But there is a difference in the feeling of just going to a stadium in the neighborhood and it being the same place that everyone's always gone to to see professional soccer,
1: well, and again, I think uh, <clears throat> MLS came to that realization uh, later in its uh, in its uh, tenure as well, right? In, in many respects, you you uh, I argue that the Timbers probably with the have been the best example of, hey, maybe building a brand new stadium in the suburbs, and and as a uh, long suffering Chicago Fire fan, and the whole sort of escapade of Bridgeview, which is the worst version of yeah know. i mean you know I, and there's a lot of other sort of reasons and all that stuff but but you know yours is the quintessential uh you know the young adults uh, uh you know uh, urban uh you know centered uh environment uh march to the park you know all that kind of stuff is you know and it and 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 even better <laughs> the original stadium that the original portland Timbers played in uh yeah. with all the history uh extant yeah Absolutely. How much did Merritt Paulson uh bring to the table on this because you know obviously the minor league baseball franchise was uh utilizing uh, uh what was you know still then known as uh, uh as a civic stadium um but you know I my guess is that it was a relatively well I don't know was it controversial when not only he you know bought the the rights of the franchise but then decided that that the Timbers were going to be the sole participant or playing entity in that stadium versus say minor league baseball. Why did minor league baseball lose out per se? I mean, I think it's a pretty bold statement on his part. How much do you think he sort of saw history uh, and that structure as part of that mix? Or was it just, just a steel eyed business decision?
2: It's a multi-layered answer to that question, but I think that the safest way to say it is, um, you know, he, he bought both. So the Beavers was the, the baseball team. And that was a name that while there had been some other times where there were minor league teams under other names, like the Mavericks, and there was a Rockies affiliate called the Rockies, but the Beavers had existed as a name since 1901. So it was a big deal for baseball to lose out, uh, in the way that it did in that, in that stadium. But, but Merritt Paulson was the owner of both of those franchises. So, you know, he, uh, to say he was only looking out like, like to say he was looking for a way to get rid of baseball is is definitely wrong but what he in b- baseball in portland i should say but i think i think what he did was when he he'd been on, the owner of the timbers for uh, and the beavers for a few years when they started making the push for you know MLS expansion and you know the beavers for all the history you know they only dr- they were drawing like I mean, pathetic crowds. I mean, 5,000 people, you know, and in a, in a 25,000 seat stadium and they had like, and not extremely well maintained either. Right. No, no. I mean, there are definitely different, different renovations over the years. And there had been a big one in, in 2001, but it just, they had like 300 season ticket holders, you know, and it, It's not that people didn't like the Beavers and didn't like to have baseball in town and there had been baseball in town for basically a hundred years, but from a sports team ownership perspective, the, the number of season ticket holders for the Timbers was growing every year. And I think that he deserves some credit because it wasn't a popular decision to get rid of the baseball team that he definitely had some ideas of building a separate baseball stadium, a much smaller facility in a couple of places in town. And when those ultimately turned out to be fruitless, that's when he ended up deciding to sell and then the team relocated. So I I don't know that he had a crystal ball. uh, And I definitely don't think he was super pro soccer and super anti-baseball. But I think from a numbers perspective, it was becoming clearer and clearer that the city had a soccer history, and that if you actually invested resources in the team and in in in, in their marketing, that you could tap into that history. And you know, I think a lot of people this is so you know, mid mid-aughts is when he bought the the timbers, you know, could see that soccer is growing. Maybe, you know, soccer is always the next sport. I know that and everything, but it's, you know, the, the numbers relative to minor league baseball made a lot more sense to invest his money on that side. So, and he wanted to be an MLS. He had tried to buy the earthquakes, um, before they moved, uh, to Houston and that, that fell through for whatever reason. And so that, you know, major league soccer was definitely a goal of his when he came to Portland, um, I don't think that that meant that it would have to happen without baseball, but it became only possible to do one, you know, MLS said you got to have a soccer specific stadium, you know, you got to have a rectangular place and that is not going to work for baseball. So once that all became clear and no stadium was able to be built, you know, a smaller facility for them, then it was the obvious, you know, the obvious move. And so, I mean, he gets a lot of credit for, sticking with it and investing the money. And, you know, there are lots of things to say about Merrick Paulson or, you know, where his money comes from or how he uses it or whatever. And I'm not here to get into any of that um, because I think it's his own choice to do what he wants. But um, the fact is he's dumped a ton of money into the Timbers and, um, you know, from every you know, academies and Artificial, you know, really great artificial turf and renovations to the stadium multiple times. And, you know, it's just that that's, you know, turned into having a, you know, 15,000 person waiting list for season tickets. I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty amazing. Um, you know, in, in a little more than 10 years, what his initial investment in the, the team has turned into.
1: All right, let's take a quick pause. We've got to pay some bills around here. It's not a charity, you know. We want to say hello and welcome again to our friends at The Great Courses Plus. We love The Great Courses Plus. I am certain that you will too. What is The Great Courses Plus, you may ask? Well, I think the best way to describe them is unlimited video learning with the world's greatest professors. Like uh, that, that tagline implies. If there's any topic under the sun, perhaps, uh, you want to harken back to your days at college, maybe you haven't yet gotten to college, or maybe you just didn't have the opportunity to go to college. Here's an opportunity to kind of delve into a wide array of topics and categories uh, and subjects that, uh, you know, without any exams or, uh, you know, any stress of of studying uh, in the realms of things like history or science, uh, things like food and wine, maybe health and fitness, uh, economics and law and religion, and in concert with folks like Uh, the Smithsonian or National Geographic, uh, the Culinary uh, Institute of America, and yes, even the National Baseball Hall of Fame and Museum for the current course that we love, and uh, we're maybe about uh, seven or eight lectures into right now, Uh, it is fascinating. Again, it's called Play Ball, The Rise of Baseball as America's Pastime. Uh, It is uh, narrated and presented and taught uh, by bruce Markison of the uh, national baseball hall of fame and museum uh and uh, again a lot of different uh, interesting uh discussional topics uh some of which we've scratched the surface on uh in our uh, various episodes this Is a lecture devoted to baseball's relationship with the press very interesting stuff the uh, statistical history and beginnings of baseball and why it's become uh arguably the most uh, statistically uh detailed sport of all the sports uh, in the united states uh, how the players and owners and the this thing called the reserve clause we've had a number of episodes devoted to that the economics of baseball uh, scandals and deception on the diamond there's a whole lecture devoted to that and and many many more up to uh, what is it 24 uh, lectures in video form and it's by the way available online you can uh, download the app uh, it streams to any device Uh, And that app, like I said, which streams to any device, you can also download all of the coursework Uh, onto your device. Let's say you're not going to be near an internet connection or uh, you can also listen to it in audio only fashion. So let's say you're driving or doing something else that uh, requires your eyesight but uh, allows you to listen. That is how cool all this stuff is. Again, it's the Great Courses Plus and uh, we have a special offer for our listeners uh, to not only enjoy the uh, entire series of Play Ball uh, but also all of the courses available to you at the great courses plus uh, and that uh, website is the dot com slash good seats again the great courses plus all one word dot com slash good seats and you're gonna get one free month no uh, strings attached uh, yours for a limited time for all of the courses, not just the baseball coursework, but all of the courses at the Great Courses Plus. Again, thegreatcoursesplus.com/goodseats. You're going to get a free month of unlimited use to stream any of the courses uh, at not only baseball but any of the topics and the hundreds of other lectures and series available to you. And we thank our friends at the Great Courses Plus again one more time. The Great Courses Plus. Dot com slash good seats hope you enjoyed as much as I have been so far and uh, we also hope you enjoy the rest of our conversation coming up right now so in your pursuit of uh, of going back into the to the history sort of uh, uh, roots of the original team that sort of begot all of this stuff what, what's your strategy like what are you gonna do are you' gonna talk to a bunch of people do you interview them do you do you, do you think it's going to be definitely a book? Do you think it's a documentary? Do you think it's a website? I mean, what do you think you're going to do uh, with the knowledge that there is this team and there's this information out there that is uh, not well documented? Uh, what do you, what's your process in all of this? Uh, and and how do you kind of circle around, say a book of, of 1975, which is the, the first year of the franchise is kind of one of your outputs?
2: Yeah, I mean, I think my first idea was, um, to, or of what it would turn into was I, I, I wanted to write a book about the NASL era in Portland and It took about 15 seconds to realize That that would be biting off way more than I could chew because I, I wanted to do What I, what I, what I really wanted um, Was to, to get the information out there. I mean, it's definitely not, you know, the 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 best Narrative book that's ever been written. I mean, it is an information dump and part of the reason for that is that that information wasn't—it's it, not that it wasn't available, but it it wasn't available in one place. So once I realized, once I sort of understood the level to which I wanted to, or the the, the sort of the granular detail I wanted to get into, I realized that doing a book about you know eight years was way too much. Too many people, uh, too many people I would have to interview. Too many, you know, box scores and match reports to go through, you know, from newspapers and all that kind of stuff. It just, it seemed too overwhelming. And so I thought that if, if I was going to do less than that, that the only thing that made sense was to do the very first season. And well, I, actually I did briefly consider doing the last season, um, the 1982, but that seemed like it'd be kind of a downer, <laughs> um, and I was sort of, I was starting to do this in the buildup towards MLS. So I, I was hoping in this, I missed by a year, but I was hoping to do something around the same time that the MLS team launched and sort of, here's the first team and here's the new team, you know, same time kind of thing. But, um, so then I, then, yeah, I mean, like I said, there's a lot of guys who had, had played in the seventies who either never left or, or moved back. And a lot of those guys are, or at that time were, still very involved in either youth or collegiate soccer in the Portland area. So a lot of people knew how to get in touch with, you know, I you know, I looked at one newspaper report and you go, well, here's all the names of the guys who played in the game. Well, you know, since I didn't grow up here, uh, I wasn't familiar with very many of them and as I started to talk to other people who I you know, met at Timbers games and stuff, they, they'd say, oh, yeah, well, that guy's the he's the coach over at such and such high school. Or, oh, yeah, he's the he's the women's coach at University of Portland or, you know, whatever. And so then I realized, wait, there's all these guys. They're actually here. I don't have to even do something like what we're doing right now. I can hopefully talk to them in person. I can maybe go to their house or meet them at a bar and get. An actual interview uh, you know, and and get to know these people who are going to be the the people who are in the book. And then I can compare what they have to say about their experiences from thirty five years prior with what the newspapers say happened in those games and in those practices and on the travels and trips that they took and whatever. So I mean, started with one, and that helped lead to I mean with the players le- helped lead to others. Um, you know a lot of these guys didn't want to just tell their story to anybody or, or you know didn't want to sort of invest in the possibility of going deep into their experiences and their memories until they knew you know if it was going to be legit or if there was going to be a actually an end product or or what um. And and once that ball started rolling, it you know each guy helped kind of reel in the next um, until I talked to most of the living members of the team.
1: Yeah, it's almost like you became a firekeeper in some respects, and and maybe almost an an an, an unwitting Timbers historian, I, if there is such a, a an official. Uh, it, I, for that it was
2: what I, I it was a it was witting. <laughs> I mean, it's what I wanted to have happen. Um, I mean. I wanted it to be more official than, than it was, but, but, um, but that's, that, that's what I wanted to do was to, to get these guys to talk to each other and, you know, it, you know, you can always remember more things, even if they're anecdotes that end up being slightly off from, you know, the sort of printed record of whatever it is, um, getting those guys to talk to each other, not only got them excited and kind of got me in the door, but also it, oh yeah, don't you remember this? Oh yeah, I'd forgotten about that. Oh wait, wasn't the this guy the 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 other owner in the ownership group? Didn't he? They brought memories out that I could never have known. The kinds of questions to ask to generate those answers. They they did that amongst themselves, um, just by hanging out again, um, and and talking to each other about it. And it you know it just it it gave more life to. The project for me and to them and once they were invested in that that way then you know it, it wasn't even about me i was just the person writing down the things that they were saying um that either no one had asked them or no one had write, written down when they had something to say about it well
1: as 1975 becomes the the focus of your of your efforts right the first uh, the first uh, year in the nasl for the portland timbers what um what started to emerge as as elements of the story uh because by all accounts it was a uh, a pretty rapid ascension right from the formation of the team to it going uh, getting on the field and the love affair i guess of portland you know just uh, falling for this uh for this professional soccer team that year
2: yeah i mean it it, it they sort of had the perfect timing in a, in a certain way in that while the Mavericks baseball team was was sort of Getting a lot of attention. They were an independent baseball team They were not affiliated with any major league club and they were getting a lot of pressure and they ultimately went away and there was this other football team you know the Thunder in 75 that we talked about and it was the offseason for the Trailblazers and they were still really bad They hadn't yet won their their NBA title. It was right after Bill Walton's rookie year and so the, and only
1: the, only by the way the travel is only 5 years old at that point, right? I think they started in 1970 yes. if I'm not mistaken. So Portland That's by right. the way not, right. yeah. not the sports mecca if you will uh, by any stretch. No, and and so there
2: was room for you know in, in in a way that in other cities maybe there wasn't as much room for something else. And it was the summer and you know Portland is a pretty wet and gloomy place except in the summer, in the summer it's awesome. Um, I actually like the clouds and the rain, but it never rains in the summer here at all. Uh, And so you can count on being able to go out to the ball game of whatever sport you like. And so the Timbers fit into this spot where uh, there wasn't the highest level of other professional sports going on around them, and the Trailblazers were in the off season. So they didn't really have a ton of competition in that regard. They, um, you're, you're absolutely right about the the rapid or the, the rapidity of their ascension. They, they were, they were, they had so many problems raising the money to, to get their club off the ground that they missed the draft. Um, and you know, so they, they basically had to pull the whole team together in about a month, um, from naming it to, coming up with a schedule to actually getting players over from England um, to having tryouts for the, the, the North American requirement for the rosters. I mean, they had to do everything kind of all at once. So it is a little amazing that they were good (laughs) in one sense, because there was they didn't have any time to prepare, but what they ended up doing was they got a bunch of guys generally from the same part of England. I mean, their, their, their coach was, uh, Vic Crow, who had been the manager at Aston Villa, um, he had also previously been in the uh, in Atlanta in the in ASL in the very early days. So he had a connection to to dealing with stuff and the and the peculiarities of travel and of roster building in the U.S. But he but he had all these guys who he'd been their coach at Aston Villa and he had pretty deep roots in that part of the country. So most of the Timbers players in 1975 had either previously played at Aston Villa were currently at Aston Villa had, they were at Wolves or Birmingham city. I mean, it's more than, I I think about two thirds of the roster comes from that same, you know, Birmingham area, uh, in England. And so they had guys who were familiar with each other from having played together and guys who were familiar with each other from having played against each other. And if you're gonna put the team together at the last second, that's definitely the best way to do it, because then you don't you, you at least have some working starting point um, you know from which to to launch this endeavor. And um, you know it worked out awfully well. I mean, I think that the the love affair aspect of it, I mean, the the Timbers were f- for the era, high scoring and exciting to watch they they played a like a really attacking true 4-3-3 uh with these like you know super fast crafty wingers and you know if you don't have a ton of experience watching soccer or soccer at a high level if you're gonna get guys who can send in a bunch of crosses and then you have a big towering forward up front who's gonna head them in uh, and, score, you know, you're going to score three goals, four goals often when you're playing at home. That's exciting. Um, and they almost never lost at home, and that helped. And they just sort of caught fire at a time when, you know, no one knew any better. No one knew any different. There wasn't a lot of competition. And they were good and exciting. It's it just sort of a perfect little storm of um, generating a fan base from, you know, next to nothing,
1: well, they, they also wound up winning what uh, de facto now is known as uh, the Supporter Shield. They were the best regular season record and obviously in the old NASL points aggregation uh, in the league in the regular season and went all the way to the final game against the uh, second best team, I think by three points off they were uh the Tampa Bay Rowdies that year in 75. So, I mean, y- you could not have scripted an on-field performance probably much better than the the timbers did with the exception of not winning the full on championship but how about the city itself uh the fans uh you know in your investigation and, and the people that talked to you was it because of the novelty you think was it because of the summertime you know gap filling or do you think that that uh, the soccer was uh, something uh that itself was attractive and and just gained fans because it was not only different, but, you know, exciting and fun to watch.
2: I mean, I, I don't want to go with the easy route here and say all of the above, but it, it kind of is all of the above. I mean, I think if if the, you know, the, the very first game that the members played, they played the Sounders in Portland. It was raining. There were like were 6,000 people there and they lost, you know? So it's not, it's not like the the whole thing was some foregone conclusion because of, you know, circumstances um you know th- those circumstances had to be realized and if the timbers had been bad but the weather was nice and there wasn't a lot of competition they probably still would have gotten some healthy crowds just because it was there was some novelty to it and the weather was nice and it was something to do on the weekend um if they'd been really great but they'd been overlapping you know if they played in the winter you know if for example the schedule had been such um i don't think they would have gotten the the turnout because the weather's terrible. People like basketball. Uh, even the Blazers were bad. They still, people still preferred that they still do. Um, so I I think it it is a combination of those things, but you know, for the relatively limited soccer knowledge that existed here, um, you know, people can appreciate, uh, enthusiasm and athleticism and, uh, high scoring. And the guy, a lot of the guys, there were sort of two two levels of players here for the most part. Guys who are who sort of on the back end of their careers, uh, who were sort of just doing a favor for their old coach, or a bunch of youth team guys who were 19, 20 years old, who were coming over to the U.S., you know, like everywhere else in the NASL, to get some minutes, to get some time. They're just coming out on loan, their clubs wanted them to get, get some experience playing against relatively high level competition and get some minutes and, and come back and try to contribute with the home club. So, you know, those guys were super enthusiastic about scoring goals and tr- practicing hard and, 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 giving everything they had cause they were, they were doing it. You know, a lot of the guys, it was their first time ever leaving England. Um, you know, to say nothing of coming to the United States. Um, you know, for them, it was a big adventure that had a huge payoff on the back end if they succeeded and impressed their, their managers back home. So I think, you know, you can, I think fans can, of any sport can, can see and, and, and notice real enthusiasm and people who are investing their, their whole selves into what they're doing. And, you know, for a lot of reasons, there were a lot of Timbers players doing that. And then when you do that and you succeed, you know, that's just sort of a self-fulfilling prophecy. Then you you know, crowds get bigger. You, you keep scoring goals. You, you feel better about yourself and, and everyone can tell. And, you know, the Timbers were smart too. They, they, in the way that they marketed the team right off the bat, they, they would have parties at the, at this uh, hotel downtown on, on Broadway and it was open to the public. So the Timbers had a home game afterwards, they'd take a shower, do their interviews, whatever, and then they go to the hotel and they just have a big open ballroom and you know, open bar, and fans could come in and get pictures taken or shake hands or have a conversation with the guys who they just watched on the field. So they could have this like very personal connection if they wanted. Um, you know, with these guys who normally you only see, you know, athletes of that caliber from afar, and as time has gone on, you know, from behind you know, basically behind glass, you know, they're they're protected so much and we understand why, but in those days you could do that. So I think it, all of that sort of spilled directly into this over, what became an overflowing cup of enjoyment and entertainment and success. And then ultimately passion of fans for, you know, a city that doesn't have a ton of professional sports options it's not super hard to fall in love with a team. That's really good when you don't have a lot of other options to choose from. Did
1: you get a sense of where the term soccer city USA came from that year? Yeah, it was
2: as far as, uh, as was known by any of the players and was reported in the papers at the time, the general manager of the team, Don Paul, who had actually played in the NFL, uh, with the Rams and the Browns, I think, um, Anyway, he was given an interview with the Oregonian newspaper and Seattle was coming to town and it was the first time Portland was selling out Civic Stadium. Um, then, you know, they, it was the, This interview was the day before the game or whatever. And so he said in this interview, we're going to show him who the real Soccer City USA is. And that's at the, at the next game, the, the game against Seattle, someone made, had read it in the paper and made a giant banner and hung it on the outfield wall. It said Soccer City
1: USA. Yeah, it's um, iconic, actually. That picture I remember yeah. it vividly from uh, lots well, of there, stuff.
2: There's yeah, there's two. There's two great versions of it. One is the one that most people know, which where it's like some Boy Scouts hanging the sign up. Um, it was on the cover of a Kick magazine, for example. Um, but there's another version, uh, which is isn't really well known because you'd have to go through. I guess now it's online, but at the time it was a microfilm situation. Uh, there was a photo. I think it was in the Oregon Journal which was a is a no longer existing newspaper but was at the time a competitor of the Oregonian. And they've got a photo from the next day when the Thunder were playing an exhibition game. And over the you know you could sort of see the linemen and the quarterbacks, you know, under center and in the background is this giant Soccer City USA sign right over, you know, it's the whoever took the photo for the paper framed it perfectly. Um, and it's, to me, that's an even more iconic photo, even though it's not really well known because you're getting some additional context that like there's there's another thing going on in the same stadium the next day. And yet there's nobody in the stands for that. And there were 27,000 people at a soccer game the night before and the signs still hanging there on the wall. Um, now I don't know if that's a term that Don Paul had heard somewhere else and was repeating it to say, you know, they may think they are, but we're really the, I don't know. Um, it's the only printed, or the, it's the earliest printed version of that saying in, in Portland that I've ever found, and no one, none of the players or any of the fans ever remembered anything other than seeing it on the wall uh, before that game in July against Seattle. So I, I, uh, I wish I had a a very, very definite specific answer to this question because, or, or I wish that someone did because it would end a lot of, um, a lot of the conversation online, uh, about which, you know, the provenance of that saying and about which city it refers, but, um, definitely in Portland, it's a late July Seattle game, um, and a, and in a interview from the general manager with the newspaper.
1: That's very interesting. And one last question sort of on, the, on that 75 season then is, what of the rivalries uh, at that point? Right, Obviously, in the Western Division, as it was newly set up in 75, the Timbers were categorized with the, uh, the Sounders in Seattle, the Whitecaps in Vancouver, which today obviously is known as sort of the uh, Cascadia Cup kind of series, but also the L.A. Aztecs uh, and the San Jose Earthquakes, which, by the way, uh, had become quite the thing in 74 themselves. The phenomenon, uh, you know, uh, to kind of taking, frankly, I think the NASL, uh, frankly, to another level. At that point, maybe even giving them the grist uh, to even double down on the uh, uh, the West Coast, and more particular, the Northern West Coast, uh, with the advent of uh, of Portland and. Seattle and and uh, and you know continuing uh, their investment in in Vancouver when when did the rivalries were they immediate and because of their geographic proximity or did they take time to build and percolate or or in 75 this very first season
2: yeah i there's a there's a couple ways around this and i, I you know the thing that always surprises people when when i either get this question or when i talk about it is that the sounders during the season were not the timbers number one rival now that's on field and i'm I'm gonna come back to that in a second but i wanted you know portland and seattle and to a lesser degree portland vancouver you know they they'd had teams and not only were the sonics and the blazers playing in the nba at the same time by then but they they'd had you know minor league hockey and and you know base you know the the rainiers and the beavers had played against each other in baseball for you know 75 years i mean Those were established rivalries just because of location between those cities in all sports. So there was a definite rivalry immediately, no matter what, if the teams had been both bad, this is in particular with Portland and Seattle, they're both bad, both good. They ended up being both good and playing in the playoffs, but it didn't, that didn't have anything to do with whether or not Portland and Seattle were going to be rivals. They definitely were going to be rivals immediately and automatically. But in the actual season, I guess up really up until the playoffs, because like I said, the, the Timbers did have that dramatic overtime uh, win against the, the Sounders in the quarterfinals. But during the season, it was really San Jose. And they had some major problems, the Timbers did, with the way that the Earthquakes ran their organization, controlled their fans. They didn't like Crazy George at all. Um, and so there was a lot of, um, you know, there were there were a lot of fights, red cards, um, fans, you know, throwing things on the field, hitting players, um, f- players trying to go into the stands and fight fans. I mean, it, it was it, it, definitely ugly scenes and, uh, you know, in the very first game uh, between the two teams. And so I think they had a really intense on field rivalry. And then they also had some fun sort of off-field. Like the Timbers made a really big deal and they complained to the league and they said they would never play in San Jose again. And you know, the the league kind of talked them down. So when San Jose, when Portland came back to San Jose, the Earthquakes got one of the tigers from the zoo or somewhere and had it, you know, someone had it on a I don't know, a leash or whatever, but Sort of on the sideline, you know, and the this the joke was sort of like this is, you know, the Timbers want to make sure there's adequate, uh, you know, security. Well, n- you know, nobody's gonna nobody's gonna rush the field or throw stuff when this tiger's, you know, kind of roaming around here, and there, you know, the photos in the paper and and stuff like that. And so, I mean, that that's kind of like one of those fun, uh, goofy, uh, NASL kind of stories, but it came out of or, you know, sort of in response to the Timbers legitimately being upset and, you know, really being worried about player safety, both on the field and then in in interactions with the fans. Um, And so I think, I think a lot of people don't expect that to be, you know, that San Jose is sort of the original rival. Um, But with anything between Portland and Seattle, I mean, over time, that geographical rivalry is going to, ultimately be the number one rivalry, no matter what's, you know, the quality or of the teams or the number of people in the seats.
1: That's really interesting. All right. So let me ask you one last question then. And uh, this is great. I mean, we could go on for hours, I think. Yes, uh, definitely. Sort of these connections. But (laughs) I do think one of the uh, uh, grandest traditions uh, is uh, the continuation of uh, Timber Jim and Timber Joey from, I guess, the earliest days, I'm guessing 75 as well. Could What did you learn sort of about sort of that? And and maybe maybe you tie it all together. How does that come back in modern form uh, as uh, perhaps maybe the ultimate expression of history runs deep and, and arguably maybe symbolically with you know, <laughs> rings of a very large tree <laughs> going back in time? Yeah, I mean, in it, so. Timber Jim
2: did not do his act in the very first season. And the Timbers had a couple of uh, other mascots. I forget now the name of the very first one, but it was, you know, literally a guy with a tree costume, you know, sort of a Douglas fir costume playing a trumpet on the sideline. You know, there's like a couple of photos, maybe one in a newspaper, a few that I've seen from, from fans who took it. But so Timber Jim he, he's he came to some games, I think in the first season, but he got involved with the Timbers, I think in 1977. And, uh, I mean a true lineman and, and, um, you know, it's, it's not his, his, uh, what we would say is his act is not, I mean, it is an act, but it's, you know, he actually, that was his job to use that kind of equipment, the chainsaws and the, and the climbing gear and the, and, and all the stuff that he's, you know, most famous for, that that was that was real. And you know that that timber was one of the major industries in this state for the majority of his existence. And so he, yeah, he he um he he basically just went and asked the the team, like, hey, can I, you know, can I show up with the with the chainsaw? And they said, well, no. Yeah, what could go wrong? <laughs> yeah, like, what are you nuts? Like, <laughs> of course not. And and to be honest with you, I I can no longer remember what what it was that ultimately convinced the Timbers front office at that time in nineteen seventy-seven to let him start doing that. And and the scale that he did it on at first was very small. It was not a it was not a log, it was not a tree. It was like a two by four. And, you know, it was very he didn't walk around with the chainsaw in the stands. You know, I mean it was sort of behind the goal. Is, is kind of where he was limited to, but it became so popular. And, and obviously it's, it's right in the, in the window, not just with soccer, like we're talking about with crazy George, but you know, the Philly fanatic and the San Diego chicken and all these, all these like iconic uh, goofy mascotty things, you know, a lot of those are sort of right in the same time period as, as, as you know, and coming to prominence and teams using those kinds of things as a, both entertainment and as a draw, you know, entertainment to those who are already there and as a draw to potential future people to come. And I think because it was pretty legit as far as it being his actual job. And, you know, in those days, Portland was not, you know, this like left-leaning hipstery, um, you know, bubble at all. It was pretty conservative place and pretty small town relative to cities. And um, like I said, Timber was still the dominant you know industry in the state and it seemed pretty authentic and they ultimately gave him a lot of room to to sort of do whatever he wanted but the main the main reason that we still have it now in the MLS era is that when the Timbers came back in 2001 so did Timber Jim and that didn't necessarily have to happen he could have moved or you know, done something else with his life or, you know, not gotten into soccer again or whatever. But was
1: was that I'm sorry, was that of his own volition or was there a reach out by anybody in the team at that point to say, come on back? I I don't think that the team would actively sought him out in
2: 2001. There was a lot of stuff going on um, in Portland and in Oregon around then where the uh, the eco activist Trey Arrow was doing a lot of stuff here and, hunger strikes and all these kinds of things. The Timbers actually had a different logo for the first few years of their reincarnation in the aughts that didn't have an ax on it because there was sort of a negative view of deforestation that this guy and, and the sort of environmental movement was, um, you know, was, was sort of pushing at that time. So I don't think that they actively sought out a guy who would then be, you know, need an already cut down tree and then, you know, chopping or sawing additional pieces off uh, with the chainsaw. But, um, but you know, a, a lot of the people who went to those games in those early days in 01 and 02, you know, they had been going to games in the 70s and early 80s. Um, so they were familiar with him, and he was pretty well-loved from, you know, the old days. And he just kept doing his, his thing. And so anybody who went to see soccer for the first time after the NASL era or, you know, or most of the time in the NASL era too, th- you, you got Timber Jim and, you know, he'd stand on the dugout and lead the chance and cut down the logs and climb up the light poles. And I mean, just, he did all this stuff and, um, you know, that was sort of a central rallying point, um, because he's such a nice guy and he's such an enthusiastic fan and he, you know, just has this personality and and uh, aura about him that just draws people in and, you know, you want to fight alongside whatever Timber Jim's fighting for, um, independent of the fact that he's, you know, wielding the only chainsaw around. So, um, you know, when, when they, when they went to MLS, he, he, um, sort of right before that he decided to retire from doing all the, all the games and, you know, and then doing, like he started doing, you know, community appearances and, you know, th- that kind of stuff. So um, he stopped doing that and uh, Timber Joey took over and, um, you know, they do stuff together sometimes still. And Jim will, Jim still goes to all the games and sometimes he'll still get down in the front and, you know, lead a chant or two. But, um, you know, Joey does all that stuff too. And then but in much more so than Jim, Joey is actually an employee of the team. So, you know, he, he'll go to the, you know. Go to the grocery with one or two players to sign autographs on a Wednesday afternoon, and you know, just do those kind of community appearances. I mean, it's much more of a an organized, um, official mascot uh, than than what Jim did. But you know, it it's a uh, it's it's super weird and unique. Um, you know, I, anytime anybody I know from growing up or my parents or whatever watch on TV or you know, they they people still can't believe that there's a guy with a chainsaw. Uh, in a stadium, but you know, here, that's not, that's not a novelty anymore. It's just what, it's just what it is. And people love it because it has that connection to the past. It's what he's one of those guys. I mean, the Timbers, you know, until before 2011, they had retired one number, which was Clive Charles, um, who passed away from cancer. And I think in 2003, and he'd been a player for the Timbers and also a coach of the University of Portland and also, you know, involved with the Olympic teams for the U.S. And then the only other thing that was up in the rafters was Timber Jim's name with, you know, crossed chainsaws behind, you know, behind it. I mean, it, you know, it's a really, um, you know, it's a, it, it's. I guess what I'm trying to say is the connection with him is just in connecting the present with the NASL past is just as strong through Timber Jim as any of the players um, or coaches or fans. Those are the, I mean, those were essentially equal leading up into the, in the MLS era. So I, I think, you know, as sort of weird and unique as it is, it really does fit in kind of with the rest of the story that, you know, when you, when you if you want to establish a connection or remind people of an already established connection between the past and with the NASL, you can do it with on-field stuff. You can do it with players and coaches and you can do it through timber gym and having that extra layer, you know, that people may not have known anything about soccer when they were going in the seventies, but they remember timber gym. Um, You know, that that's really helpful when, you know, moving up, back into the first division and finding some way to bring it all together to say, hey, we're one of the few places that has all the history. Let's lay it all out for you. It covers every part of the spectrum.
1: Yeah. And there's a balance there, right? And and you could, uh, you juxtapose that with, you know, uh, the relatively new traditions that are at least being started, right? The the Bell in Montreal or the the yep. Wonderwall in Minneapolis, St. Paul, and you know, they, n- no no disrespect to any of those things, right? But those are, I wouldn't call them artificial, but they're brand spanking new, right? And of course, if they continue to you know gain traction, they become tradition over time. But again, uniquely, you don't have to create something from a new. You can actually. You know, you're burnishing something that started from the past that uh, is all new again, and and has all that history uh, attached to it. I, so, the, you know, this is the, this is an amazing uh, uh, sort of journey because I I do think, you know, if you if you really think about it, be the the team that probably has the most, I guess, depth in terms of roots and heritage and connection, I guess, to its current iteration. I mean, I I would venture to say. It is the Portland Timbers, right, uh, in terms of, of history. I, I, you know, having grown up as a Cosmos fan and knowing that it exists as a, you know, a minor league NPSL team right now, right, uh, that brand still lives on, but, you know, albeit uh, somewhat sort of on a, on a much smaller basis, I, arguably that could have had a chance should, that, should the rebirth of the NASL had, uh, had taken root. And who knows, maybe it will again. But I think until and if that ever happens, right, which may not. Um, I, I think you could safely say that the Timbers are probably the uh, the deepest rooted uh, American uh, soccer franchise, both of past and now, uh, you know, from 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 start to uh, to current. Yeah. I mean, I'm glad
2: you said it and not me, because I'm biased as a fan of the team. But it's but it's true. I mean, like, like everything we've said, it's the same name for the team with the basically the, the modernized version of the same logo in the same stadium. I mean, it. There is there on those levels, there isn't anyone else even remotely close uh, that can match each of those things. No one plays in the same stadium at all. Very few of the logos resemble the the ones from the 70s, other than sort of promotional, you know, one offs and and stuff, which is fun and great, and I'm glad people do it. Um, and and you know, only like we said, only the only those four teams have the same the same names. So, you know, I think uh I think you're definitely right. Uh even the Timbers don't have the, the the most uh storied history of of success. Um certainly of any team out there, but that doesn't necessarily mean anything relative to uh that sort of level of uh or that that depth. I think that was a perfect word for it. It's just a depth of options for what attracts you to a sport or a team. And there's a lot of different things that can feel comfortable and feel normal uh, because it's all the same.
1: All right, time to promote. Uh, How do we uh, find out more about this book? Uh, And uh, frankly, uh, have you given it uh, some further thought to maybe go deeper into the entire uh, eight years plus of the original Timbers now that you've had the opportunity to get this first year out? And, uh, and some fandom under your belt as, uh, as a fan of the current team. Yeah, I, I
2: don't think I'm going to go back and do a, a, a bigger version. I, I hope that someone else does. Um, And that that's part of what I wanted to do in, in getting this book out there in the first place was give other people a starting point to do some of this stuff on their own. And I in no way am I suggesting that I'm the only person who's ever looked into the Timbers or ever written anything about it. Um, but the, But it's... Um, that's a project that's I think too big for me, um, that I, I don't know that I have the time or the ability to do anymore. Um, but I really hope someone does it because it's a it's a worthwhile thing and there's some great great stories and weird stuff. In particular, about the the uh, the ownership of the Timbers from 1980 to 82 is some of the weirdest stuff. Um, and the coaching changes and who the general manager was that, that this is a tease for anyone who wants to do a little bit of digging that there is some weird stuff, um, that happened with the timbers and they almost went out of business a couple times. And, you know, before ultimately there, there's some fun and interesting stuff out there, um, you know, to find, but I, I'm not sure I've got it in me to do a, a whole other book. But as far as the one I did write, um, the, the official title is, uh, very boringly the 1975 Portland Timbers and uh, the sub, sub is the birth of soccer city USA. And at this point I think Amazon is probably the best place to find it. Um, if you're in Portland, there are sometimes still copies of it at Powell's books, which is the huge independent bookstore. And anyone who's been to Portland has been to Powell's. Um, but uh, otherwise I think Amazon's probably uh, the best option to find that it's still, people still buy it around Christmas, uh, and stuff like that. It's definitely still, it's not out of print. It, it is still available. Um, and it's, uh, I don't know. It's, if you really like stuff about formations and, 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 um, you know, stories about travel, you know, going to different cities and guys who've never done it before that that's a lot of what it is. And, um, yeah, it was a blast, blast to do and feel really lucky that those, Guys trusted me enough to tell me their stories and and allow me to fact check it against newspaper reporting and and sometimes tell them they were a little bit off uh, and still work with me afterwards uh, to give me more. So anyway, yeah, it was it was great and thank you for giving me a chance to talk about it. I, I loved doing it and
1: I could talk about it all day and night. The pleasure has been all mine, frankly, for uh, for having you. Um, uh, one last, I guess, very last question: Where where will we find you when we watch national broadcasts of of uh Timber games, uh, in the stadium and, and, and what, what's your critique of the, uh, uh, the, uh, the new, uh, uh, renovation and that, uh, gigantic, uh, tier, uh, that they, uh, just, uh, recently installed on the uh, far side. Uh, well, I'll start with the, the second part. I, I actually don't, I have no,
2: no, no, uh, no qualms with it at all. I think it's great. Um, it, it really, um, well, there's only been one game, uh, with it so far, uh, but it keeps the sound in, uh, one of the, the, the main features of the the previous version of the East side of the seats was, it was very important that the, it kept a view open to the street, which had always been the case in that stadium. Always, always since, all the way since 1926 that has now is now gone, which is a little bit of a shame in some ways, but the, the way the sound stays in, uh, is, is, is really amazing. Um, it's, it's a beautiful thing. They did a lot more work in the stadium than just building that, um, that new stand. They, they rented, I mean, repainted everything, redid all the concessions and team store and, and all that stuff. They really took advantage of the opportunity to do that. So it's, it's a really nice, nice experience in there. It's, it's really, um, it's a, it's a real legitimate upgrade. Um, not just a, that's not just the word. It really, it really feels different, um, As far as where I am, what I usually tell my parents is I'm the guy with the beard wearing green, uh, which is, you know, really narrows me down. (laughs) Yeah. Um, no, but I, I mean, I have season tickets in the Timbers army, uh, I've had them since 2010. And so I'm just down there in the mass of people in the North end of the, of the stadium behind the goal. Um, I don't do as many of the, the chants and stuff and, and the intensity like I, I used to, um, when I was younger, but uh, that's where my tickets are. There's a 15,000-person waiting list, like I said. So uh, something I will never be doing is giving up my tickets. Uh, when I can't go, I give them to a friend or whatever. But um, yeah, down down there in the north end with all the all the loud and, and crazy people, it's it's really a, a really wonderful and fun experience and place to go. Even though I've, I mean, I've been going for 11 years now, and it's it's no less fun than it was the, the first time I went.
1: thanks to the unofficial historian <laughs> maybe the official historian i don't know if there isn't a role i think michael or should be it but we I, we do thank you michael for uh joining us and and giving us some insight into the original portland timbers and yes again i will make the case and i will uh stand by it sure there are plenty of other legacy teams uh some of which are in mls some of which are not say like the tampa bay rowdies or of course, the uh, the New York Cosmos and and some other diaspora of some of the original names from say uh, the old North American Soccer League. But I, I think the cleanest and most direct uh, heritage lineage of any of those teams that came uh, in that heyday of uh, the NASL and that lives on truly uh, in uh, in purpose and in verve and uh, in, uninterrupted, I think, frankly, uh, from its original. Logo, its original stadium, and its original zeitgeist, and frankly, some of its even original uh, traditions—you know, with Timber Joey taking over for Timber Jim with the uh, cutting of the log after every goal—it is the Portland Timbers. I'm not going to fight you on it, but I'm certainly going to defend it. And uh, and I thank Michael for uh, bringing us uh, some goodness uh, from the uh, the old days of the uh, the NSL, and obviously, lots more. Uh, goodness ahead for the Portland Timbers uh, in the uh, years uh, to follow the book uh, that Michael wrote that I highly encourage you to uh, to get uh, and read and devour as I have. uh, It's called the 1975 Portland Timbers, the birth of soccer city. USA it is published by the history press and of course you can find it and all of the other books and other forms of media that we talk about here on this show of course wherever good books are found but if, if you'd like to do us a solid and uh, give us a few shekels of love uh, why don't you go to our website at goodseedsstillavailable.com and just search up this episode with Michael Orr on the Portland Timbers. And uh, click on the link, why don't you? And you'll be whisked away to Amazon. You can buy the book through their their, uh, uh, website. And we'll get a couple of uh, pennies or maybe a nickel or two. And uh, that helps uh, keep our lights on. We appreciate that. I'm sure Michael appreciates it as well. Uh, And if you're a Kindle Unlimited subscriber with Amazon, actually, I think that the the book uh, will cost you nothing. Uh, It is part of the uh, Kindle Unlimited service. So uh, another great example of uh, why Amazon... uh, is a good place to do that. And perhaps even a good incentive to maybe subscribe to Kindle Unlimited uh, as well. But if you want a paperback uh, copy of the book, you can do it that way. Whatever you want, we've got it all there for you. Just search up this episode with Michael or Hopefully you'll be glad you did. And of course, uh, that's the website, goodseatsstillavailable.com. You want to find out what's going on in this show. All of our old episodes are there for you to stream or to download, do whatever you like. Uh, there's all kinds of cool images and photos and uh, synopses of all the shows and, and all kinds of links to to relevant items and/or books and/or other forms of media, it's all there. Of course, you'll find all our social links there too. On Twitter, we're at uh, Good Seats Still. Uh, on Instagram, you'll find us at Good Seats Still Available. Uh, you will find uh, the link to our Facebook page uh, devoted to us. Uh, you will also find a link to sending us some email if you'd like, or you want to do that directly, do that too. Sure, why not? At hello at goodseatsstillavailable dot and last but not least, you want to sign up for our weekly email newsletter when we kind of give you a tip sheet on what uh, we're going to be talking about the next week. You can do that, too. There's a convenient link uh, on the site there as well. We're going to build out a lot more stuff, some more merch to come uh, and all kinds of good stuff. So uh, visit there early and often. Bookmark it. Why don't you? And uh, we uh, thank you again. That's good. Seeds still And one last thing we want to say, of course, our, our continued thanks uh, to our pals at Podfly Productions. You know, Jerry Payne. Uh, You've never met him. He's never been on air before. Someday we'll drag him on the uh, behind these microphones. But he's the guy responsible for helping us get our uh, our stuff together each every week. And uh, we drive him nuts. But he uh, he still keeps coming back for more. and We appreciate it. And you can find out more about Podfly Productions at their website. And that's podfly.net. All right, we are done. I appreciate uh, to no end you uh, giving us a listen. And uh, we're going to take you out with, uh, <laughs> believe it or not, 1975. Uh, Peter Yates and team had a song devoted to the Portland Timbers. It was called Green is the Color. And Here's that theme song for all you Portland Timbers original fans out there. Enjoy that and uh, enjoy your, uh, your summer, everybody in Portland and elsewhere. And uh, we'll look forward to seeing you next week. Until then, our ticket window is now closed. Take care, everybody.
3: Well, the city's been so quiet since the boys in green went back. But it only took them three months to put Portland on the map. Yes, the stadium's never heard the sound of cheers in all its years. When the players come on the field, the thousands singing in their ears. Green is the color. Soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers. And winning is our aim. So let's give all of the boys a cheer For the Portland Timbers will be here Now the stadium's dead without them As the went start to form Still the fans they sit here waiting For their timbers to return In the taverns on a weekend You can hear them from afar Singing praises to their timbers As they're lifting up their jars Green is the colour, soccer is the game, we're the Portland Timbers and winning is our aim, so let's give all of the boys a cheer, for the Portland Timbers will be here, you ain't got to be 200 pounds or a giant at 7'3", to play this game called soccer, which is growing rapidly. You can hear it on the radio, you will see it on TV. But when the Portland boys appear, you will hear them sing with glee. Green is the colour, soccer is the game. We're the Portland Timbers, and winning is our aim. So let's be all of the boys and cheer for the Portland Timbers will be here.